We're sitting in the Mad Hatter pub. The building was once part of a large South London factory called Tress & Co. Where a century ago they made men's bowlers, toppers and boaters. There were thousands of hat makers working here in Southwark. Many of them suffering from the hatter's complaints. Trembling, twitching, lurching and losing their memory. So what was driving the hatters mad? My name is Mark Zakian and I'm joined by my fellow Blue Badge guide Anthony Robbins for this podcast. Which is part two of our investigation into men's fashion. In this episode you will discover how you could go to prison for your pants, hear about rough times on London's Piccadilly, find out why wigs hated wigs, listen to these stories in this podcast. London, 1565. Richard Walwyn was arrested and sent to prison. His crime? Wearing? A very monstrous and outrageous great pair of hose. Walwyn was detained until he could prove that he had some other attire. Of a decent and lawful fashion. The offending hose were a pair of short, baggy trousers that ballooned around his thighs posh pants padded in Tudor fashion to show off his shapely legs. Fine for Dandy Dukes, but Woolwyn was a member of the meaner sort. A servant who was banned from sporting hose that were stuffed with more than a yard and three quarters of material. In 1576, a fellow of King's College Cambridge was sent to prison. The Dapperdon's crime was that below his academic gown he was wearing a cut taffeta doublet and a great pair of Galagastian hose. Another case of the wrong trousers, and he was punished by the university. Laws restricting what ordinary people were allowed to wear started appearing in England 800 years ago. One of the earliest decreed that London prostitutes were forbidden to wear fur. These sumptuary laws peaked during Tudor times with a series of acts of apparel restricting more expensive materials to aristocratic classes. A way of making sure people knew their station, class, rank and privilege. In 1574, Queen Elizabeth I issued a statute of apparel, which stated that the wasting and undoing of a great number of gentlemen and others seeking by show of apparel to be esteemed as gentlemen who allured by the vain show of those things, do not only consume themselves, their goods and land, but also run into such debts that they cannot outlive without unlawful acts. In other words, they were stealing money to pay for the latest fashions. The punishment for breaking sumptuary laws started with the guilty party being forced to hand over the offending garment and being fined three shillings and fourpence for every day that they illegally wore the clothing. Of course, this did not apply to the Queen's servants. Or her favourite actors. Or her jousters. For the ordinary person, it wasn't just a case of what you couldn't wear, but what you had to wear. In 1571, an Act of Parliament decreed that on Sundays and holidays, all men over six years of age had to wear woolen caps on pain of a fine of three farthings a day. 
except for the nobility and persons of degree. The reason for this law was to keep the English wool trade busy. Wool was literally the fabric of the nation. And until the 1700s, nearly all working people's clothes were made of wool. So important to the economy that in the 1300s, King Edward III forced his Lord Chancellor to sit on a sack of wool while presiding over the House of Lords. And today, the Lord Speaker sits on the wool sack. A symbol of how important the wool trade was to England. They have great and monstrous ruffs, made from the finest cloth that can be got for money. They stand a full quarter of a yard and more from their necks, hanging over their shoulder points, and they goes flip, flop in the wind like rags flying abroad, and lie upon their shoulders like the dishcloth of a slut. The devil, in the fullness of his malice, first invented these great ruffs. It's hard to imagine anyone getting so angry about neckwear. But the Puritan writer Philip Stubbs wrote a fulminating page of rage against the ruff in his anti-fashion book, The Anatomy of Abuses. The ruff began as small ruffles or folds which appeared when a shirt was tied at the neck that grew and grew in the 16th century, becoming so large that a wire frame was needed to hold them in place and maintain their upright position. Standing out up to 10 inches on either side of the head. A pain in the neck in many ways. The collars soiled very quickly, meaning frequent laundering. Time consuming and expensive, the ruff had to be unstitched, washed, restarched and restitched. Reinforcing its status as high status clothing. Ruff making was absolutely not a rough trade with an entire area of central London dedicated to ruff makers. Lace ruffs were also known as picadills, either from the Spanish word picado, meaning pierced, or possibly the Welsh for pointed. Giving us London's Piccadilly, named for the picadills who worked there. Elizabethan England saw the rise of the ruff among the wealthy classes. But with the Puritans breathing down the neck of the ruff wearers, the super collar had had its day. And by the 1600s it was kicked into the rough, replaced by a simple neck piece around the shoulders. Aristocrat Edward Coke had a very posh problem. His gamekeeper's hats kept getting knocked off. Coke's fieldsmen looked very smart in their matching livery. But their top hats were too tall and too fragile. One swipe of a tree branch and off they came, dented and damaged. And they had to be replaced. So, in 1849, Coke visited his St James Hatters, Lock and Company. Asking if they could make a hat that would stay on and protect the heads of his gamekeepers. Locke hired hat makers William and Thomas Bowler to solve the problem. According to legend, when Coke came to pick up his newly designed hat. He dropped it on the floor and stamped on it twice to test its strength. Satisfied with the design, he handed over 12 shillings, the equivalent of a month's wages. And the bowler hat was born. While Locks is in aristocratic St James's, Thomas Bowler worked at the heart of London hat making in Southwark. Since the 1500s, this was the home of hatters and felt makers and was nicknamed 
Hatter's Paradise. Thomas Bowler's hat migrated from the hunting fields to finance. By the First World War, it had become the symbol of the banker. No respectable chap would be seen without one. Millions of bowlers were sold every year. Keeping Southwark's hat makers busy. Theirs was a toxic job. To remove the skin from animals, to make felt, hatters used mercury. Which poisoned the hatters. Making them lose memory and have trouble speaking, giving rise to the phrase, mad as a hatter. They stopped using mercury in the 1940s. By the 1950s, hats were no longer part of men's daily dress. But here in Southwark, there is a street named Hatfields to remind us of the hatting history. And the bowler is still a British icon. From Charlie Champlin's tramp character to Stan Laurel and the bowlered banker George Banks in the Mary Poppins film. In 1797, an article in the Hatter's Gazette reported a troubling outbreak of headwear-related violence. John Etherington, abadasher of the Strand, was arraigned on a charge of breach of the peace and inciting a riot. Mr Etherington appeared on the public highway wearing upon his head what he called a silk hat, a tall structure having a shiny luster calculated to frighten timid people. Several women fainted, children screamed, dogs yelped, and a young porter, Thomas, was thrown to the ground and had his right arm broken. The defendant was seized by guards and taken before the mayor, where Etherington claimed that he had not violated any law and was merely exercising a right to appear in an headdress of his own design, a right not denied to any Englishman. In the late 18th century, people were getting mad at hatters, hairstyles and headwear. Problems began in 1795 when the government imposed a tax on hair powder for gentlemen's wigs. An annual certificate for anyone wanting hair powder now cost one guinea, around £100 in modern money. Reforming radical members of the Whig Party started wearing short-cut natural hair, rejecting old-fashioned wigs. The Whigs, W-H-I-G-S, were against wigs, W-I-G-S. Fuddy-duddy wig wearers who paid the powder tax were nicknamed guinea pigs. A new style of round hat to go with the natural hairstyle was designed by hatmaker James Locke. From the prestigious St James hatmaker Locke & Co. As well as creating the bowler, Locke have made many iconic hats. Admiral Lord Nelson visited the shop to order a cocked hat and cockade. His signature bicorn, complete with eyeshade. That he wore at the Battle of Trafalgar. Locke made a black fedora for the flamboyant writer Oscar Wilde. And when Wilde was imprisoned, he couldn't afford to pay his final hat bill. So in the year 2000, one of Wilde's fans sent a letter to Locke, enclosing a cheque for £3.30, settling Oscar's account a century after it fell due. During World War I, the revolutionary Mark I metal helmet was regulation headwear for soldiers and officers. With its standard sizes and bulky leather interior, many soldiers visited Locke to have their helmet fitted there before being sent to the front. Winston Churchill adopted Locke's Cambridge and Homburg hats as his sartorial signature, and Prime Minister Anthony Eden was never without his Locke Homburg. Locke & Co 
is still there. Since 1676, when hatter Robert Davis opened a shop on the newly fashionable St James Street. The seventh generation of the family still run the trade. Making it the 34th oldest family-owned business in the world and the oldest hat shop in existence. 2,500 years ago in Somerset, a man got himself a smart pair of new shoes. Made from a single piece of leather, carefully stitched from toe to heel with laces across the top. We'll never know that man's name, but we do know his shoe size, a 10. 15 years ago, one of his shoes was recovered by archaeologists at the foot of an ancient well. It's the oldest shoe in Britain. And the first step on the story of British shoe wear. It's a strange story, starting with how we measure shoe size. You'd think it would be in feet. But no, the measurement is barleycorns. Starting from the smallest size, zero. Going up one size every third of an inch, one barleycorn at a time. From the time of Iron Age Somerset Shoeman to the Tudor era, the craft of shoemaking remained basically the same. Then, during the 1600s, shoemaking changed when heels started being sewn into footwear with the right and left shoe now identical. So everyone literally had two left feet. Until in the 1800s, manufacturers worked out how to make right and left heels for shoes. And the modern shoe was born. Daniel Defoe wrote that an Englishman's shoes come from Northampton for all, from the poorest countryman to the master. Cobblers first started working in Northampton 900 years ago. Thanks to its location near cattle farms for cow hides. An oak forest with tree bark used for tanning. By 1840, 1,821 people, that's a third of the town, worked in shoemaking. Northampton had become the heart and soul of British shoemaking. Even their football team is nicknamed the Cobblers. Northampton has produced every type of shoe, such as the Brogue, which originated as peasant footwear. The name coming from the Celtic word brog, meaning shoe. The holes cut in the leather to help drain water after crossing bogs and muddy swamps. It's now a smart leather business shoe. The Oxford, with its closed lacing, is named after the university. The Derby started as a sporting and hunting boot in the 1850s. Named for the big-footed Earl of Derby, who found it hard to find any shoes that would fit. His shoemaker designed an open lace boot that helped him get his shoes on and off. Chelsea boots date from the Victorian era and became the fashion footwear for 1960s men. In 1959, Northampton shoemaker R. Griggs bought the patent rights from German doctor Klaus Martens to produce air-soled shoes. They anglicised the name to Dr Martins, added yellow stitching and trademarked the soles as airwear. The original Dr Martins were cherry red, smooth leather boots popular with postmen, police officers and factory workers. By the 1960s, skinheads started to wear docks or DMs. In the 1970s, they were taken up by scooter riders, punks and new wave musicians. Top of the line Dr Martins are still made in Northampton and the town is still home to 30 bespoke and luxury shoemakers, including Joseph Cheney and Sons, Crockett and Jones, Trickers and Loke. 
there's no other place that can claim to have produced the boots for Darth Vader and shoes for James Bond and Prince Charles. For centuries, a man's shirt was unseen. Worn under the outer garments with only the collar and cuffs visible. Basically, underwear designed to protect expensive waistcoats and jackets from sweat and dirt. With collar and cuff styles changing according to fashions. In 1827, New Yorker Hannah Montague invented the detachable shirt collar. Snipping off the collar from one of her husband's shirts, she washed it and then sewed it back on. Now, rather than laundering an entire shirt, a dirty collar could be exchanged. The French cuff originated in Great Britain. This is a sleeve doubled back on itself and fastened with a cufflink. In 1871, Brown, Davis and Company, tailors and gentlemen's outfitters of Aldmanbury in the City of London, registered the first patent for a shirt that buttoned all the way down the front, giving birth to the modern shirt worn by billions of men today. In the 1930s, removable collars were replaced by fixed soft collars. Today, only a few professions still wear attachable collars, vicars and barristers. The white fixed collar shirt needs to be washed and ironed daily. So the term white collar was coined to differentiate shirt-wearing office workers from labourers. German Street is the London home of the great British shirt. And Turnbull and Asa is the street's most famous shirt maker. They've tailored shirts for the aristocracy and Hollywood elite, with customers including the Duke of Windsor, Cary Grant, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra and Fred Astaire. In the 1960s, film director Terence Young was a customer of Turnbull and Asa. To turn the young, working-class Sean Connery into Ian Fleming's image of James Bond, the director sent the actor to Turnbull and Asa. He was outfitted with turn-back cuffs, fastened with buttons, as opposed to cufflinks. These became known as James Bond cuffs. Daniel Craig in Casino Royale wore Turnbull shirts, which have also featured in the Kingsman films. Perhaps one of the strangest contributions to fashion created by Turnbull and Asa is the velvet siren suit made for Winston Churchill. This one-piece item of clothing was originally designed by Sir Winston during the Second World War to be quickly slipped over his clothes in the event of an air raid. So the wartime Prime Minister invented the infamous onesie. And Churchill sent his siren suits back to German Street on several occasions, damaged not through enemy action, but by cigar burns. The Atlantic, the Ascot, the Balthaus, the Bloom, the Boutonniere, the Bow, the Braided, the Caldwell Swag, the Capsule, the Cape, the Café, the Cavendish, the Caped Elric, the Half Wine, the Hanover, the Kelvin, the Kent, the Clamsey Hourglass, the Pratt, the True Love, the Trinity Eldridge, the Tulip, the Van Wink, the Windsor, the Half Windsor, the Prince Albert, the Vidalia, the Victoria. This list sounds like a code name for spies or titles for luxury hotels. Would anybody name a hotel the Pratt? No. It's actually a list of 58 ways of tying up a neck piece. That's not easy to do. The necktie developed from the cravat. And the word cravat comes from Croat. Because during the 1600s, French King Louis XIII hired Croatian mercenaries whose uniform included a decorative neckcloth. Which the king admired so much, he made it mandatory for royal gatherings. 
and so the cravat became fashionable across Europe. By the 1900s, the cravat had given way to the necktie. In the 1920s, New Yorker Jesse Langsdorff patented a new way of cutting fabric on an angle and sewing it in three segments. Giving birth to the modern tie. During the past hundred years, its width and colours have changed. From the fat 50s kipper to the skinny bolo. Neckties became a way of identifying yourself. Your regiment, your gentleman's club, your company, your tribe, your school. Most English schoolboys struggle every morning with the four-in-hand knot. Which is the most popular of the many ways to fasten a tie. During the 1990s, two academics at Cambridge's Cavendish Laboratory did mathematical modelling to reveal that you can make 85 knots with a conventional tie. This didn't add to the 30 Nobel Prizes won by researchers from the Cavendish. But they did write the definitive book on tying a necktie. In September 1953, the Daily Express newspaper shocked Britain with stories of a new youth movement. The Edwardians, better known as Teddy Boys. Young men whose clothes were inspired by the styles of Edwardian dandies. Soon after World War II, tailors of Savile Row started making a flamboyant line of menswear which harked back to the early 1900s clothes worn by King Edward VII. Single-breasted, long-fitted jackets with velvet trim on collar and cuffs. Paired with narrow trousers, brocade waistcoats set off by a narrow slim jim or bolo tie. It wasn't the gentlemen of St James who adopted these fashions, but working-class teenagers. Whose swaggering made-to-measure suits cost them the equivalent of two weeks' wages that in post-war austerity Britain often had to be paid in instalments. They danced to a big band orchestra piece known as The Creep. A title that became associated with the Teddy Boy's wide, crate rubber-soled shoes. First worn by World War II soldiers in North Africa to deal with extreme climate. Named brothel creepers after those demob soldiers who were found stalking the darker parts of Soho and King's Cross. Manufactured by Northamptonshire shoemaker George Cox with uppers of suede or polished leather. While Teddy Boys looked to the past for their inspiration, in the 1950s another youth movement took their name from the cool beats of modern jazz. The mod style was smooth cropped hair, neat rounded collars, a button-down shirt and short narrow collared tailored jackets, loafers, bowling shoes or Chelsea boots. They travelled on scooters, lambrettas or vespers. Pop rock groups with mod followings included The Who and The Small Faces, as well as ska and jazz bands. Mods became more cosmopolitan during 60s swinging London and were closely associated with Carnaby Street. The Parker jacket was a classic mod accessory. First invented in the Land of Ice by Caribou Inuits who made them out of seal skin. The military green fishtail Parker was warm and water resistant. Perfect for riding along the seafront on your scooter. In the 1980s, the Parker came to be associated in the UK with train spotters, giving birth to the term for a boring obsessive, anorak. The mod's nemesis were the rockers. In the 1960s, these motorcycle enthusiasts would gather at biker calves. These coffee bar cowboys, or leather boys, wore studded, decorated leather jackets, 
turned-up blue jeans and biker boots and would listen to 1950s rock music. The occasionally violent clashes between mods and rockers became a fearful refrain in the popular press. Captured in the 1979 film Quadrophenia, which featured Sting in the part of Ace Face, the king of the mods. The influence of mod fashions is never far away from British men's styles. With clothes brands such as Ben Sherman and John Smedley. Modern mod fathers include the musicians Paul Weller and the Gallagher brothers from Oasis and the actor Martin Freeman. A new generation of younger mods include the cyclist Bradley Wiggins and musicians like Miles Kane and Jake Bug, keeping the clean-cut mod style in vogue. In the 1960s, Carnaby Street was the centre of the fashion world. The king of Carnaby Street was Glaswegian John Stephen. Stephen was the first retailer to sell to the young 50s and 60s menswear mods market. The pioneer of high turnover, disposable fashion. Dubbed the one million pound mod, he had a chain of 15 shops on this one street. Stephen said, Carnaby is my creation. And of the street, he said, I feel about it the same way Michelangelo felt about the beautiful statues he created. By 1967, Carnaby Street was selling a new style. In clothes shops now known as boutiques. The minimalism of the mods was out. Replaced by a cacophony of counterculture colour. And for a decade or so, the sober tones of menswear flash back to foppery. Kaftans, wide trousers and lapels, Afghan coats, beads, patchwork, tie-dye. Poochy, silk-printed patterned ties. Clothes were outrageous and androgynous. But by the early 1970s, the hippie summer of love was nearing its end. Flower had lost its power. The idea of wearing a kaftan and never taking a bath shifted into a new style. The shiny glam rock look that included jumpsuits, satin shirts, velvet sports jackets, silk scarves, oversized collars, flared trousers, metallics and spandex. Led by the gods of glam, David Bowie and Mark Bolan, who glittered their faces and wore high-heeled stack shoes. 1970s fashions, just as Charles II had worn in the 1670s. This was the last gasp of the 20th century fop. A new style was about to literally rip up clothes and the fashion rulebook. To be bad is good, because to be good is simply boring. The words of Malcolm McLaren and the rallying cry for a new street style. A shop at number 430, at the wrong end of London's King's Road, changed the direction of world fashion. Run by partners Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood, it began as a refuge for out-of-time teddy boys and lost leather-loving rockers. The store, rebranded as Sex, announced in big letters on the small shop front. On Saturdays, disaffected youth would hang out at the appropriately named World's End. The shop was their social centre. McLaren spotted one of the hangouts sporting green hair and a homemade I Hate Pink Floyd t-shirt and asked him to audition for a band he was managing. And so the Sex Pistols were born. By 1977, the single 
God Save the Queen was number two. Or number one, depending on which conspiracy you believe. And punk rock went mainstream. Punks cut up old clothes, destroyed fabric and refashioned it. T-shirts were slashed and written on by hand, seams and labels deliberately worn on the outside. Vivian Westwood said they were... Putting a spoke in the system on a mission to shock and irritate. Punk fashion steamrolled centuries of style. Fabric had been treated as a material to keep pristine, new-looking and beautiful as possible. Now it was torn, scarred and shocking. Punk put anarchy in the UK's clothes. Safety pins held fabric and noses together. Punks wore neck chains made from padlocks and razor blade pendants. And slashed their shirts and trousers. But like any fashion, there's always an historic precedent. In Tudor times, men would slash their sleeves as virility symbols of having been in sword fights. The fashion industry has always known how to capitalise on a trend. And today's fashion jeans are sold with ready-cut slashings. And tomorrow's styles will rework the past 700 years of men's fashion. This British Guild of Tourist Guides podcast was written by Mark Zakian and co-hosted with Anthony Robbins, also known as Mr Londoner. The music was by Scott Buckley, Astrogenta Stoned by Alexander Nakarada, and Let's Twist and Roll by Freesound Music. For tours and information about Blue Badge Guides, visit britainsbestguides.org. Please subscribe to the channel to listen to part one of our Men's Fashion Podcast.